another edition of Musical Explorations. This is your host, Ted Peterson, and this week we're going to listen to the music of American composer Harry Parch. Okay, we just heard an excerpt from Harry Parch's suite. It's kind of a suite, but it's called Wind Song, and it was rewritten. Um, it was actually written in 1955, but he rewrote it in 1967. In fact, we're going to see a lot of this in Harry Parch. When he started developing his instruments, as we'll talk about later, he revised a lot of his works to fit his new systems. He originally wrote them for one system. As the system got more expansive and more complete, he rewrote his works to fit it. It was rewritten in 67, and it was called Daphne of the Dunes. Now, I don't know if it has anything to do with um, uh, the dunes, it's dunes of uh, Oceano or anything like that, if he was down here. He might have been. There's nothing in his biography that says he was. But Harry Parch, what is it about this guy? Let's see what we can figure out what makes this guy work and what he's all about. Uh, he was born in Oakland, California on June 24th, uh, 1901. And he died in San Diego on September 3rd, 1974. So that's pretty good, pretty good span there, 73 years. Uh, he lived a pretty rough life. It wasn't an easy life for him. He, he was a hobo for a while, as you'll see. And uh, uh, during the Depression, he was a, what they called a, bi a bindle stiff. Anyway, uh, Parsh developed uh, the concept of corporal music and um, differentiated his music and, and certain musics from classical music. He totally rejected Western classical music. Um, and this became problematic for him because he, as, his, as he grew older, he got involved with some universities because he had done something quite unique. And, um, um, and because of that, he wanted to go into universities and teach about this stuff. Well, the universities, because he had no educational background, he had rejected everything the university stood for, they didn't have much truck with him. They put up with him for a, one or two years, and then, then he, he, they parted of the ways. It seemed pretty, pretty uh, common. So what do we call Harry Parch? He was a musical tinkerer, that's for sure. Uh, he was a microtonalist. He built his own instruments. He was an instrument builder. He was a composer, and he was a theoretician. And in all these, he excelled. Whether we like what he did or don't like what he did, that's immaterial. He excelled because he developed a, an inclusive system that worked with inside itself and developed a literature to go with that system and a philosophy and theories to go with his uh, music. So it all supported itself. Now that's an interesting thing. Whether, whether you like what he did or don't like what he did, that's immaterial. The fact is this guy created an entire system of music, music notation, instruments, and philosophy to go with what he was doing. So that's always interesting. Uh, as I said, he developed this concept of corporal music, which he, he, he thought that the ancient music and music that was utilitarian in concept uh, was, was the only important music. It, music had to be associated with the voice. 
music without a voice was was considered abstract, and he did not like abstract music. He thought what was happening in Europe um, as he was getting into his musical uh, main year, shall we say, was completely disgusting. He had nothing to do with what the, the, the atonality, any of the, the attempts to disintegrate tonality or anything like that. In fact, he thought that the tonal systems that we use, the equal-tempered system that we use in part of our musical system and what we use, was horrible. He thought that the early Greek systems, all based on just intonation, uh, were the ones that we should be using, and then this equal temperament was a perversion, and he found it disgusting. Anyway, we're going to talk, talk about uh, what a just intonation and uh, the systems that he used later. I'll give you some demonstrations so you can really figure out what, why his music sounds the way it does. Now, if you remember in the last show, I talked about uh, Roy Harrison. Well, Roy Harrison knew Harry Parts. They all were students uh, one time of Henry Cowell, and Henry Cowell was the guy who had this class called People, Music of the Peoples of the World. that uh, was a very popular class. He taught it in a number of places on the West Coast and the East Coast. But Parts did know Harrison, and as, uh, as I mentioned with Harrison, he wanted to develop microtonal systems, and, and Parts developed a system of a scale of 43 tones. And we'll talk about that later, and I'll show you what, what it kind of is and, and emulate it if I can in a way. Parch, uh, instead of Harrison, who used the Balinese idea of music and the, and the things from the Asia, Parch used stuff from the Kithra and from Greeks. And I'll talk about how he got to that. It actually happened in England. Uh, he used the musical ideas of ancient Greeks, uh, especially Pythagoras, and the Pythagoras idea of tuning and the monochord and how he differentiated tuning and how scales fit together and those type of things. Um, now, I'm not going to try and acquaint you with Parch's musical ideas, all of them. It's impossible. He has three huge volumes of, of books plus thousands of pages of journals. There's just no way I can get you to understand what he was doing in one hour or how he arrived. I will, but I'll try to get as close as I can so that you can understand when you listen to this guy's music, what are you hearing? Because it doesn't sound like anything that we've heard in some ways. And in other ways, it's very easy and very simple. And I want you to focus on the simple aspects of it because the complexities will work themselves out into the piece and you'll get used to the complexities and the different sounds and, and his performing style. He, a lot of his works he performed himself, uh, which is very interesting. He's had a lot of films made about him. He, he was at Betty's, Betty Freeman's. I told you about her, the uh, wonderful patron of, of new music and of composers and actually wrote his last work was a... Uh, a piece he wrote to a film that she made called The Dreamer and the Dream uh, in, in, in the 1970s. Okay, so there's plenty of sources available. If you want to get in, get by Genesis of a Music, if you want to read about the internals of, of Harry Parch, it's very complex. He, he breaks down ratios and tuning systems in four or five chapters, that, that absolutely incredible work of scholarship. So, I mean, for a guy with no education, he did pretty damn good. Uh, lucky for us, as I said, uh, Parch wrote a lot about his stuff. He, he wrote uh, uh, extensively about his processes, and he worked them out slowly over time. So, and he actually documented all that. Now, for a while, his early journals were lost. They were found in 1991 in somebody's attic in a in a box somewhere, and they uh, 
added to already uh, the new band, which is doing all the Parcher stuff, and added to the already voluminous amounts of uh, writing and films and, and uh, works done studying uh, Parcher's system. So, here we are. He's a microtonalist, hates Western music, so Bach, he thought, was horrible. Didn't like Bach. He thought Bach's use of the 12-tone, 12, the, uh, 12 equal-tempered system, his adoption of it in the well-tempered clavier was a complete perversion. All right, so what, uh, what is it about this guy? Uh, his parents were missionaries. Remember, he was born in 1901 uh, in Oakland. His parents were missionaries. He's, he's a Cal another California boy, so I've covered all, I'm covering the California composers, and there's a reason. I'll explain this later. Because there are composers on the East Coast, but I think the, the future of where music is now, the microtonalist and the, uh, and the minimalist, especially the, the force of minimalism, is, is basically out of California. Uh, Terry Riley and those people. We're going to get to those composers and, and talk about them in future shows. Uh, his mother gave him uh, music lessons. Uh, his parents, like I said, were missionaries. Music was part of everybody's life. Uh, remember, it wasn't, a, it wasn't uncommon to have a piano in every house. If you had a little bit of money, people got pianos. Every kid's got some kind of music lesson somewhere. That was a very important part of climbing up the social ladder, shall we say. Um, there was no television, no Xboxes. There was no internet. There was no radio for all practical purposes. Most people didn't have radios. Uh, but people did have music, and they performed a lot and played a lot. Sheet music sales were probably the, the golden age of sheet music sales because you could buy songs, and Beethoven even wrote uh, abbreviated versions of his own works to get published so that beginners could uh, do them. And this has happened, it happens all the time. Things go up and down. But we now, we're inundated with input from devices in our world, the visual world, and we don't spend so much time with music. It's getting more and more rare. Asians give their kids music lessons, all of them. It's a, it's a part of their life. They do it. Jewish people do too. Uh, it doesn't, hasn't seemed to translate. If you go to an orchestra and you look, it's all a bunch of uh, Steinbergs and, and Rosenbergs and, and whatever, Schultzes, and, and a bunch of Yi's and, and uh, Yangs and Songs and those type of Koreans and, and Chinese, very big, and Japanese, very big into classical music. And China is one of the biggest sources of, of new orchestras. They're, they're going crazy over there with orchestras, and they love American composers and American works in China. We're not quite there yet. So uh, we, we, because we're the source of it, maybe, and we're inundated with pop music in this pop culture, we, we forget that there's a other world out there sometimes. So he learned several instruments. Uh, by 14, he was composing. Uh, his family moved to Arizona. His mother got sick. And then they moved again to New Mexico, uh, where he studied piano and became really pretty good. He, he was uh, hired as a, uh, in, the day, in those days, they had, all films were silent. We hadn't hit the sound year yet. And he was hired as an accompanist in a, in a, a music theater, and um, not a music, a film uh, a theater. And, and they would often do uh, films and live shows at the same time. So he would do, uh, accompany the films, and he would also help uh, people play little recitals and things like that in the theater. So it was it was a, a lot of fun. Uh, he was like 16, 15, 16 when he did that. He graduated from high school in 1919 at 18. In 19, next year, he's out of high school. He's working in his little little uh, piano job there and, and dreaming of bigger things, and um, his dad dies. 
I don't, they don't, we don't know why he died, but probably some respiratory thing or something like that. And they moved to Los Angeles. His mother goes to Los Angeles. I guess they had some family uh, down there, some remote family, either his father or mother. And she gets on a trolley car, part of the public transportation system in Los Angeles at that time, whack, gets killed by a trolley car. So in 1919, his dad dies, 1920, his mother dies. Now, he's a pretty capable young guy, and he enrolls in the USC School of Music. Uh, and he left. He wasn't happy with them. He was there for a while, a couple of years, and, uh, and developed a real contempt for educators and teaching. And, and he moved to San Francisco. And just like Lou Harrison, he started going to the public library and, and studying the scores. This is the, the Los Angeles Library uh, downtown in Los Angeles used to have thousands of scores. They had a fire there, unfortunately, and a lot of them got burned. Original scores will never get them back. And um, uh, we don't know if they've been on microfiche, but the microfiche files got burned too. So even if they were smart enough and kept the microfiche, we'd, we've lost that too. But original scores lost, and that's a, that's a tragic loss because there's some works by composers that... We'll, we'll never get back. At San Francisco, he began to really compose. He's, he's at the library. He's studying scores. Uh, San Francisco Library had a bunch of scores there, too. And uh, while he was studying in the library, he found a translation of a, of a seminal work on acoustics. And, and it is a book that every composer runs into and most musicians run into it sometime. It's called On the Sensations of Tone by Hermann von Hemholtz. Now, I discovered this book and built my own monochord and did all my little experiments in about 73, 74. It was at that time I was uh, in, in Cal State Northridge. And uh, I, used to, I used to what they called a bibliomance. I would go to the library and just wander around in the stacks, which, which is just to me was a wonderful thing to do, and find treasures that I wasn't assigned. And I would always come back and my teachers would say, I'm, you're supposed to be doing this and this. And I'd say, well, but this is more interesting. But they, yeah, I got, a, I got on the dean's list every year and got good grades and graduated finally. Um, I went down in 1970s uh, uh, also to see Harry Parch. I wanted to meet him, and I'd read a little bit about him. I had, didn't, I had not read Genesis of a Music yet. I got that later. But um, I went to see him and see the instruments. And, and interestingly enough, a couple years later, in 74 or 75, the new band brought some of them up to uh, Cal State Northridge, where I was studying, and, and I would talk to the guys. I'd met them, of course, down in San Diego. They, had not, they didn't come because of me. They came because uh, the director of the program there named Clarence Wiggins of the music department was a very clever guy, and he got some good composers and got good people in. So uh, it was a good, good program at that school. They were housed in a separate building. They had kind of put like a little institute down there and, and had his stuff in there. Uh, so like I said, the new band, um, kind of did it. Now, when I went and saw them, the only thing that was missing, I played, in fact, I played all the instruments except for the viola, the, the, one of the original violas that he made. And he took, he took a viola and, uh, and, and put a, an extended neck on it. Uh, many people said he put a, put a cello neck on it, but the one I had read about was actually, he just, he, he used the viola neck and then somehow got maybe he did use a cello to extend it but it was an extension it was part of the viola neck and then it wasn't like as long as a viola but it was pretty long like a guitar and the reason was that you could finger all these different microtones with it that's very difficult on a standard viola 
very easy or easier on on his instrument but it was gone it was out uh performing with someone or someone had taken it to do a performing uh somewhere in the midwest is from what i remember at any rate i thought parts of system was good but it was limiting uh, it, uh, it was basically all within one octave or if it was in more than one octave you had to have separate instruments to do the octave and that's kind of like gamelons gamelons have a bunch of different, they're kind of like marimbas. And each marimba covers a small range. Some of them are as small as four notes, and some are as big as, as 30 notes. But each marimba is in a different range. So one marimba might be these four notes, and another one might be these, and another one might be these. And they're played in such a way that the uh, the high notes to low notes sound as if it's just one melody. So Parch designed his instruments the same way, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, of course, you've had 43 tones in the octave. We have 12, so our octave is... No, it's 12 half steps. He had 43 tones in there. Okay, sometime around 1923... With the sensations of tone in his hand, which has turned out to be a book that spurred his involvement with just about everything with just intonation uh, and alternative tuning systems. Um, he moved back to Los Angeles and got a job. Uh, no, he was not a janitor. Uh, I know you're thinking all the composers that were janitors. No, he, but he was an usher for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So he, he hadn't yet codified his total hatred of Western music. He was certainly well-developed in that time, but I remember he's 22 years old now. And 22-year-olds uh, can be pretty hot-headed about causes that they uh, support. Anyway, he was a, uh, a, a, a usher. He ended up meeting this uh, uh, actor, a young actor, who I think was doing the same thing. His name was uh, Ramon Samaniego or something like that. I'm not sure I have the pronunciation correct. But he became the silent still film star, uh, Roman Navarro. And uh, when, he, when he became a star, when he all of a sudden hit star, star, uh, star status, he dumped part uh, their friendship, whatever it was. A lot of uh, uh, rumors and innuendos about it, but we don't know. He started working with his violin, and he had a, uh, with his viola, that extended viola, and he also had a violin that he worked with. And, um, and he, he focused on the viola, of course, because it was longer, bigger neck, and he uh, was working with microtones, and he's trying to get these sounds out and developing a way to identify all these different tones. And he ended up doing a 29-note uh, um, uh, uh, system. So... Uh, he's still, now he's looking for a job. He can't work, I guess, his falling out with Ramon ended up with him losing his job at the L.A. Phil. He's looking for a job, and uh, he still didn't become a janitor. He was a, a piano tuner, and he taught piano, and he also proofread as an editor, and worked. he worked as a, a merchant sailor. Uh, he's now 27 years old, and um, he wrote, and, and, and he decided that... Uh, it was an easy way to make money as a composer was to write pop songs. And he wrote uh, one a day for a long time, and he kept submitting them, submitting them, submitting them. So we're talking about 1929 uh, era. And he wrote one, and it's a funny. He wrote under this, uh, uh, this pseudonym called Pirate Pete or Pete the Pirate, something like that. And um, 
he wrote one called My Heart Keeps Beating Time, which actually got published and uh, supposedly can still be found out on, if you wanted to buy it, you could buy it. And uh, uh, Paul, Paul Pirate, that was it, not Pete the Pirate, Paul Pirate, that's what he wrote under. Uh, sometimes the memory doesn't jog so well. 1930, around that time, he goes to New Orleans, and he, uh, obviously this happens to several composers, Brahms did it, other people, but he destroyed all his early works. Uh, burned them up, put them in a, in a, in a ash can or something and burned everything up. Um, and, and either he, either he was going through an epiphany and he'd found now the cure, the answer to everything. And his life was going to take a new direction musically or, or he just wanted to get rid of his juvenilia, which happens. Composers often want to get rid of their early stuff so that nobody can go back and see how bad it was. Usually your early works are pretty, pretty, Pretty simple and, and, and very derivative. So a lot of guys like to get rid of those things, but, but a lot of composers, male and female, not just guys. So he got a violin maker, uh, and he made the viola, that viola we talked about. And uh, he used this to develop this scale of 29 notes. Now, we do have something written in that system. However, he changed it. So we're going to take a listen to um, what his... Uh, early system was, and it's a, it's based on some Chinese pieces, and it's called uh, 17 Lyrics by Li Po. This is 1930-1933 is when this is, uh, was written. The Rose The rose that blooms in paradise Burns with an ecstasy too sweet for mortal eyes. But sometimes down the jasper walls a petal falls. Now it's too bad we don't have the original work because like I said, he revised these quite often he revised these sometimes around 1950 and he would have put that sound. that sounds like a guitar. That's a, that's what he called a kithra. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about a kithra later, but, uh, it's unfortunate. So, uh, we, we do have what kind of where he was going with this. You could hear it's, it's not American sounding. It's certainly not Western sounding. And, uh, as he developed, like I said, this was built on 29 tones originally, but as he built his 43 tone, he redid everything and, and came out. So let's jump up to 32, it's a couple of years later. He performed the songs, and um, he went to San Francisco, and, and uh, Cowell had a thing, the New Music Society, remember we talked about that, and he put these on in a, at, a, at a concert there. He found a soprano somewhere, I think. And... Um, they were a hit, and they're so unusual. And uh, a group of private people got together, uh, and in '33 they sent him to New York so he could go perform in New York. In those days, still, like often, people say you have to conquer New York if you want to be a, a, a real composer and things like that. Of course, tell Terry Riley that. Um, so he went to perform for great composers, Roy Harris, uh, Howard Hansen, uh, Aaron Copeland, people like that, Walter Piston, who were living in New York and who were the New, New England school. Uh, we don't know how well they came out, but um, 
He applied for some Guggenheim grants, didn't get them. But remember, now a, a private group of people got together and, and helped him out and got him there. And uh, eventually he got a Carnegie grant um, to go to England. So he now he's performed his stuff in New York. He got a Carnegie grant. Off to England he goes. Now this is important. Had he not found and attracted the private donors, his career might have taken a completely different track. This is what I constantly promote. I constantly tell listeners, you've got to get involved with new music. You never know what's going to come out of this thing. Uh, as you'll see, there was a time when Parch was living as a hobo. He was a bum. For 10 years, he just wandered around. He didn't do much of anything. He wrote some music and things. But through the Depression, uh, when he came back in 1935, he was, was, uh, was a bum. Basically a bum, a bindle stiff, as you would call. And he wrote music and came out of all that. But if you'd have seen this guy and see what he was doing, if, he, if you're a private sponsor and a patron, you can help the guy. You can say, okay, well, look, let's put a concert on for you so we get some money for you here. We need to do that for composers here, too. We, we should be doing it all the time. Patrons is not just that you belong to the symphony and you go to the symphony and dress up nice and go sip some wine and have the same group of people over your house and talk about how great Mozart is. Wouldn't it be more exciting to bring a real artist, a living artist into your house and talk about what they're doing artistically? Why is he writing music this way? Why is she doing music that way? Why is she focusing on string quartets or why is, are people doing that uh, and, and writing music that way? I put concerts on here up at the Monday Club and did lots of advertising and things. We got very meager audiences. You know, just people weren't interested. Oh, it's new music. Oh, I'm so afraid. Anyway, you got to get over that and support the composers. Now we have Harry Parch, who's now a national hero. He's got, he's got shrines. He's a, he's, a, he's a national resource. We export his stuff all over the world. All right, so let's go back to Parch. I've, I've, I've yelled at you enough. Um. But he, uh, he uh, helped, uh, helped get California known as a, as a place for composers. It was a great thing he did. So Parch goes to England. He meets uh, Yeats, uh, William Butler Yeats, uh, Butler Yeats who uh, was uh, fracturing the language in these strange performances that he was doing and, and uh, was, was reciting his works in very weird ways and things. And, um, and he had worked on this thing called King Oedipus and... Uh, and Parch found this, uh, saw this translation, and he w sought out Yeats. He says, I want to set this to my music. And initially, I think Yeats might have been uh, okay with it, but I think eventually he said, nah, uh, I don't want to do it, because it was, it, it was never realized while he was England. And, uh, of course, Yeats at that time was, a, was fully realized in his career, and Parch was still scratching to get noticed and get known. Um but, uh, you know, the two important events occurred while he was there. One, he met a musicologist. And this musicologist was really interested in ancient Greek music. And she had taken these Greek urns that were on exhibit at the British Museum. And she'd copied the Greek instruments off of them and started making them herself. And so he went over to her place and they're sitting in her living room and, and doing whatever they were doing. And, and he started copying the, the drawings uh, uh, that she had made and also copying the instruments she made. That became the, the genesis of his, his sets of kithras and some of the sets of music that he did. And the other event was that he got a small reed organ somewhere. There was a church being rebuilt or something was happening and they took this old small portable, what they call portative or a small organ out, a little portable organ, 
and they uh, put a big pipe organ in the thing. And uh, anyway, he got this organ, and he it was the first um, uh, instrument that he actually tuned to 43 tones. He had figured out this whole 43-tone system. And, he, and the thing about this little organ was that you could retune each note independently. So he did and built his first organ. So he was playing around with it and experimenting. I don't think he composed any pieces there for it. 35, he returns to the U.S. and into the height of the Depression. The Depression's going full bore. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt is, is putting out uh, uh, projects uh, uh, to help people out, the WPA, the NRA, things like that. He spent... Uh, but uh, initially, um, uh, the, the meager amount of money that, that Parch got off of it didn't help him much. He became a bum. He said, I'm going to be a hobo and start traveling around. And he did. He traveled all around California, rode the rails, lived in hobo camps, uh, did what hobos do. And um, he finally got a small organization, a small grant from this thing called the Federal Writers Project. And, um, and he took this journal. Uh, he took journals uh, the whole time he was traveling. But he took this money and he wrote this piece called Bitter Music. But unfortunately, we don't have a recording of it and there isn't, doesn't seem to be one in existence. So we do, we do know he, he took his, his ideas of, of, of his hobo, his hobo life and that stuff, and he wrote this thing called Bitter Music. Now, what we do have is something called Barstow. And Barstow is a song that he wrote about train rides, uh, Slim's, he called it Slim's Train Rides. It's not, not Slim Shady of, of uh, Eminem fame, but his own Slim. And we do have some of that, and we have to suspect that they were pretty similar. If we know, we know what the sounds of the 17 uh, uh, poems by Lee Poe, we now know what that kind of sounded like. And let's listen to a little bit of Barstow. Barstow. Eight hitchhiker inscriptions from a highway railing at Barstow, California. Number one. It's January 26. I'm freezing. Oh, and Ed oh, Fitzgerald, age 19, 5 feet 10 inches, black oh, hair, brown oh, eyes, going home to Boston, Massachusetts. It's poor and I'm hungry and broke. I wish I was dead. But today I am a man. So what he did was he took a bunch of of notices that were posted up on these rail sightings of people uh, that were looking for people and people that were wandering around. There were notices to other people, and he turned them into a uh, the lyrics, so to speak, or the poetry for his pieces. He, he did that a lot, so very common. All right, let's hear, where was he now? Let's see, 1938, he took uh, the WPA or one of these uh, things, had some reskill classes going for uh, for people, and he took some in woodworking. Now, we don't have any, he didn't, never worked as a carpenter or did anything like that, but he used these to build his instruments, and he built his first kithra, uh, which is kind of a, a Greek harp uh, type of instrument. And as you can hear, this is the kind of thing that goes brang, brang when, when you hear his music. Uh, he was living up in Big Sur. But he didn't make them like he made the models uh, that he had from the, the woman that he met in England. Uh, he made these things like twice as big. And he had hundreds of strings on these things. Um, and he also duplicated the organ he had built. Now, 43-tone organ. 
So what does this sound like? We have our we know what twelve tones our our twelve tones sound like. I can play that. Now here's what forty three tones to the octave sounds like. The piano keyboard is laid out to be tactically and feeling under your fingers around this 12 tones or our diatonic system, C major, D major, that type of, that's called diatonics. The 43 tone system, it doesn't fit under your hand. You need to take two hands to play just what would be a standard major chord. And uh, you can't really even play it because it's a just intonation. Remember, we have equal temperament. And I'll talk some more about that a little bit, but... Uh, now you know what the 43-tone scale sounds like. So the organ he called a chromalodeon, and he had it laid out in colors and different things so you could tell the different where the different partials of tones hit. Uh, and he went back, moved back east. He applied for a Grumenheim Fellowship, which he got. So uh, you know, we're talking about from 1938. This is now 1944. And he gave a performance using his new instruments. He built a bunch of new ones and cleaned them up and did all that. Carnegie Hall, of all the places, by a composer, a concert put on by the League of Composers, founded in 1923, which included guys like Bella Bartok, Samuel Barber, Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, and uh, Serge Kusevitsky. Remember, Kusevitsky, big new music supporter. And uh, the doors were open for Parch. This was it. This was the thing that really kicked him into the public eye, uh, into prominence. Uh, he got tons of more grants, and in uh, 44, he went, he went back. He moved back to the uh, University of Wisconsin. They called him and said, bring your stuff out here. And he worked out there from 1944 to 47. He completed his book, A Genesis of Music, which I highly recommend you take a look at, put it in your library. You can get a paperback version, uh, find it on Amazon. Um, and he published it. He finished it in 47. Uh, the university published it two years later. They kicked him out. They wanted to get rid of him because he uh, uh, wasn't uh, wasn't comporting with the other academic intellectuals the way he should have. Uh, and he wanted a permanent position, and they were not going to give him one. Uh, so he left for greener pastures. But what did he do uh, there? What uh, type of music did he do? So let's take a listen to something he wrote called U.S. Highball. Now, this is a kind of a long piece. I'm just going to play an excerpt. But uh, he, it, it was based on his travels as a hobo when he was taking the trains and doing all that stuff. So you tell me what this sounds like to you. R use your imagination and see what he's trying to create here.
Okay, if you guess train, you got it. <laughs> you get the prize. Call in and um, and tell the station that you win the prize. Uh, now, there's a sound in there that sounds like um, these things called tubular bells. They're like long pieces of metal that you hit. But he actually made these things. They called them this cloud bells and, or cloud chamber. And they were tops of uh, sparklets bottles. And uh, he cut them and cut them to a particular tuning. And they, they sound like this. Now, well, of course, the only thing that's different is the materials that he made and the tunings that were part of that 43 tones tuning thing. Okay, this is the 1950s. Let's jump up here. And they were good years for uh, parts. He moved up to Oakland. And his own, his own words, for health reasons, we don't know. I've been to Oakland, and nobody would hardly go there for health uh, in their right mind, but he did. And it uh, doesn't matter because he, uh, he uh, found out uh, that um, he uh, could get an old shipyard, and he got this old shipyard and converted it to what he calls Studio 5. In the time between England and, Orcus and Oakland, though, he had uh, found a way to complete his work on King Oedipus. Now, this, remember, this is based on the Yeats translation that he had found. And he started working towards a performance and actually gave him. And uh, the Yeats estate sued him and said, stop this performance. Uh, Yeats didn't want to have you to have anything to do with his poetry or his writing or anything that he did. And uh, then he appealed. Uh, and lost. We don't have a recording of it. Uh, it was very well received. What they had done, I guess, was they'd heard through a friend uh, that he'd put this piece on and, 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 and uh, cited Yeats, of course, as a source, uh, Yeats, and, uh, as a source. And, and the family heard about it back in England, and they contacted a lawyer, and they said, cease and desist. We don't want you to sully the text of, uh, of Yeats. So, uh, he, he had to stop doing that. Um, remember, uh, Parch was, was not the international figure that William Butler Yeats was. And I'm sure he would put, the, he put that piece on for publicity purposes. He, didn't, he would never say he did. He would say, I don't care about that stuff. It was the heart and the soul of the work. But he, he was a self-promoter. He was one of the first do-it-yourself guys. He published his own records and did all that stuff. So we don't really know if he was being opportunistic or really it was an artistically driven thing. But it, it happened the way it did. Uh, he was sued and uh, he stopped doing it. It never cost him any money or anything like that, but I don't know that he had that much. Uh, like I said, 50s were pretty good. He moved into that abandoned shipyard, opened up Gate 5. It was... Oh, how how innovative in the 50s, gate five. Well, that was probably a sign that was over the uh, one of the gates there that he went in. And he made instruments, more instruments, and and refined his instruments and composed and, and did some performances. And his friends and supporters got together and started a little foundation for him called the Harry Parts Trust Fund. So he could, I don't know, he must have been a pretty poor money manager because he he was going through money very fast. And his friends... Uh, got together and they put a trust fund together for him so he would have a continuous source of income. He wasn't employed by a university or anything like that. And He sold records. He made his own records and pressed, uh, had them pressed at a little record place up there. And, um, and these things are worth a lot of money. It was on their Gate 5 label. If you ever find one, 
uh, a record, keep it because it's worth a fortune. Uh, collectors will pay a lot of money for those things. They're going for like forty, fifty thousand dollars a copy. And the cover art, he did the cover art, he did everything on it. So he's one of the first do-it-yourself guys. Now in the internet, of course, you have everybody doing it, including myself. Uh, somewhere in that year, he premiered this piece called Plectra and Percussion Dances uh, and Ring Around the Moon. These are two different pieces. They were written in, uh, in 49. He's back, uh, he wrote them in 49, but didn't perform them until much later, till the mid-50s. And then he wrote uh, Castor and Pollux, and, uh, and I think I have some Castor and Pollux, so let me dig through my library and let's take a listen to it. However much he said he hated uh, non-vocal music, he, this has no vocal part to it, Castor and Pollux. Well, he kept composing and um, altering his instruments, and uh, uh, he got involved with the uh, uh, University of Illinois and stayed several works there. And he uh, got involved with interested in film. Uh, there was a, a lot of experimental filmmakers were coming to him because he was considered a very far-out uh, composer, and he actually worked with a filmmaker, Madeline Turtolo, uh, on six films. Um, and we have, uh, we have a couple of the films, but they're not that much different from anything else that he did. And uh, went to the university, got involved with the university there, and boy, he had hostility with the faculty, was very hostile to him. Now you can imagine, this guy's a pretty, pretty iconoclastic. So he would be there saying, ah, you teachers are a bunch of idiots and you don't know what you're talking about and this system you're teaching is, is defunct and I'm the great God. And you can imagine he's into his fully, uh, into his oats, I guess, as you would say now. And, and um, uh, so they kicked him out of there. Uh, so he left back to California and uh, set up a studio in Petaluma uh, in an old uh, abandoned chicken factory and he stayed there for two years and hit the road again. Uh, and he traveled around till 72. And then he ended up down in, uh, in San Diego. Um, that's where I went to see them, down in San Diego, to see the instruments down there and, uh, and play some of them and that type of stuff. And during this period, you know, he did create his greatest 
magnus opus called delusion and the fury and uh and this is when he got the attention of betty freeman who was doing a film also and she made this film called the dreamer that remains i, I think i misquoted it earlier as a dreamer in the dream but uh, the dreamer that remains and uh so let's hear some of this uh magnus opus let's hear delusion of fury Thank you. 
Now, Delusion of Fury. Is that, uh, the piece is quite extensive. I can play the whole thing, but it would, in, in my mind, that sound gets very tiring after a while. There's not enough variation in it, uh, regardless of the sophistication of the harmonic system and the tuning system, to hold your interest very long. I mean, it's, it's, it still basically sounds like 4-4. Four, four. The rhythms are very simple. The, the range of expression dynamics, are, it's percussion instruments primarily, so it goes very, very crashy loud to, to very soft. But it doesn't do it in a way that leads you to an expression, a musical expression, where you would think that a phrase in the expression would lead you to something else. It's very difficult to do a surprise in the piece because it's always that same sound. You're going to do a crash somewhere or something like that. Um, it just doesn't seem to work out that way. Uh, it's one of the problems I have with his music, why I think it's limiting. Now, people will say, well, is this the music of the future? I mean, he's gone, he's, he's gone away from our well-tempered system. He says this is an aberration, uh, the music of Bach through, uh, through today even Penderecki and those people. Or Penderecki, of course, doing microtones, but in a different way. And, uh, and, and people like Stephen Reich and, and Phil Glass, that are, they're using the well-tempered system in a very innovative, unique way and making some really interesting music. And yet Harry Parch would have said, no, that's all baloney. This is terrible stuff. My music is, uh, is the way it's got to go. And you, you need to have these tunings and all this uh, sophisticated stuff for, for the ear. And people have to be able to listen to it. But music is supposed to be something that kind of jars you and gets you excited sometimes. It's not always supposed to be pleasant things that you would sit around on a summer afternoon and uh, with, uh, with a loved one, you know, sometimes music, you want music to, uh, as a friend of mine said, throw you against the wall. You want music to rip you apart and, and put you back together if a, if a composer's good. Anyway, let's listen to a little of the piece that he wrote from The Dreamer That Remains. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit and, um, and then do something else. unsophisticated handling of text. Um, just it would, if, if a composer was writing that, it'd be in 4-4. Uh, we hear a lot of that in church music and those types of things. I don't know how Betty ever felt about that. She never talked about it. I talked to her a number of times about different things. We never talked about Harry Parch. Uh, I mostly talked about myself. but uh, and, and talked about other composers that I met there. Um, 
um, I had a I had a disagreement with Pierre Boulez, not a falling out, but uh, uh, he was talking about a, a theory of music and how music goes, and I had a uh, I didn't agree with it, and I said, look, I I think you're limiting your thing because uh, your your argument is is that yeah, yes. You can do new things in music, I said, but they've got to be able to branch off of something. It, it, it just can't be isolated. You could create something, as Parch has done here, so personal that it's, it can't be duplicated, and the sound itself is very limiting in the sense of what you can do expression-wise. I mean, you can make sounds all you want. That doesn't necessarily unto itself make interesting music. There is some interesting music in Harry Parch. There's some interesting things. And the fact that he created this entire system is really commendable. I mean, it's just not something that people do every day. This is really uh, uh, taking something old and trying to make it something new. Does it? Does it point to music of the future? Or does it? Is it encapsulated? And it's so personal and so uh, inclusive and so beginning and ending that there's nothing further you can do with it. You could write other pieces, but would those other pieces make any difference? Would anybody say, well, gee, that's I, I, that's uh, done by, let's say I write some pieces using the instruments. They would still say, well, that's Harry Parch's music because identification with the instruments and the sound has now become identified to him. Like marching band music, people say that's a march. Um, Rock and roll, people know what rock and roll sounds like. Uh, they know classical music by the instrumentation and the type of sound. Harry Parch's music is the same way. And that's one of the ways he's important. He, he, he really made an effort to emancipate music. He, want, he, want, he thought he was opening up new doors and new vistas, and he was, he was bridging that gap from the ancient Greeks uh, to uh, the, the modern world. Did he, did he bridge it? And that's for you to decide whether he bridged it or did not bridge it. That's not for him really to decide. He's the creator, and that's the end of the thing. Like I said, in uh, 1991, they found a bunch of his journals, and that's pretty cool because he had thought he lost them, and, and we have some of the insights in, into how his mind was working at the time. He moved to Encinitas in 1973, and in uh, 1974, had a heart attack, died the same day. And we lost a guy. We lost a real innovative, imaginative artist. I mean, he made his own records. He, he staged his own concerts. He uh, built his own instruments. He defined his own musical system. Uh, he and, and his own style of music. Uh, that is not an easy task. If you think it's something that can be done by anybody, you're dead wrong. He is, it's really, really a rare thing. So you can't really write for Parch's uh, instruments. Well, like I said, without sounding like parts. Uh, that's one of the, the limitations. Also, the system itself is kind of limiting uh, to the type of sounds you can make, the type of things you could do. Now, we could make other instruments, electronic instruments you can uh, actually take and tune differently. Uh, in fact, I, I've got a module I picked up in the process of this, a little sound module, and uh, supposedly uh, I can uh, tune it to make... Uh, um, any type of uh, intervals I want. I can do a 72-tone scale if I want to. So I'm going to take that. Uh, I'm going to spend a little time with it. it just, I just ordered it, and um, I, I actually got the module, but I didn't uh, get the... Uh, there's a little editor that goes with it. So um, I'm going to get that, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see what it has. Now, I don't want to give you a primer in just intonation or not into intonation or, 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 or equal-tempered in intonation. 
Basically, what just intonation is, is a, a, every note that you have is a series of overtones. So if I play this A here, I'm actually hearing other tones, even though this is an electronic instrument, an acoustic instrument, uh, even more. They call them partials or overtones. Those overtones represent different things. One represents the octave, that note. One represents the fifth, this note. So we have this, that, and that. Those are the first three octaves, right? Well, if I play them, they're going to be... All right. In our system, those tones are in tune. Other tones are not. If the next tone up there is a third, but the third is kind of in between this, the minor third, and this, the major third. So it, it's kind of squeaky in there. It's not exactly one of those tones. Um, and then other tones are, are, are results of other notes. Why is it uh, our music works? Because this tone, if I play it A major, like that, has a lot of harmonics in, in similarity with this, the fifth. So it's five to one is a very satisfying, very satisfying sound. Five would be the E in A, back to one A. Folds in because the harmonics all coincide. We have it here. It's nice to our ear. It resolves itself. That's why our system works the way it does. Bach understood it, and he wrote a, a piece in every single key. He said C sharp is the same as C major. He wrote these pieces. Not so. In actual, real work, the keys do sound different. And there are people like my wife who have a perfect pitch, and they can hear the difference in these tones. So. Let's go out and let's find some local composers to support. I, 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 I want you guys to get involved and support local composers. It's very important. You never know what you might get. Do we get a Harry Parch? Maybe. Maybe we don't get a Harry Parch, but we get maybe somebody else who's doing something interesting, and you might help promote a composer's career, or you might get a composer's pieces performed. Joe Cokey, uh, Cloakey, son of Art Cloakey, the guy who created Gumby, had a grandfather who wrote music and they and the, got the orchestra here to play it. And they, it was very good. The, the piece isn't the greatest piece in the world, but that doesn't matter. It was well done. The piece was very good and it showed this guy going in a, in a good direction. Kind of Ivesian in a way. And I'll do a show on Charles Ives. So, um, again, this is Ted Peterson. This is Musical Explorations, and we have listened to the music of Harry Parch and uh, listened to, learned a little bit about him, which is an important thing. Go get his books, get his music, read about him. He's an important American composer, and, and you should know about him. He's part of our musical artistic history, and those things are very important.